This podcast was brought to you by our supreme boilers of leather, the Elton Dane, the new sword of the morning, Morgan, and Kate Kachka. If you want to find out how to become a supreme boiler of leather, or if you want access to all the cool bonus materials we offer, head over to patreon.com slash boiled leather audio hour. everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. We are back with our series on the Kaiserreich. With me, as always, is my illustrious co-host. Uh, hey everyone, it's Jim, commonly called something like a lawyer. And uh, this is going to be a fun episode because I would actually argue 1917 is a war that is extremely, or a year that is extremely consequential for 20th century world history. Uh, not... I mean, not to understate, but a lot of what happens in 1917 actually influences how the Cold War, who are the powers in the Cold War, who joins which camps, and all of that, and that really all starts here in 1917. We call it a epoch year. Uh, at least that's how I was taught in school, and that's a concept I'm also taking over. Uh, the other one, uh, ones would be 1941 with the U.S. entrance into World War II, and 1989 with the breakdown of uh, the Eastern Bloc. And they are, as the term suggests, they're epoch years. They they make uh, and mark a change between epochs. You know, we, uh, you often have it, this saying that there is a long 19th century, that the 19th century is going longer than just 1900, but that it rather goes either an, up until World War One or to its end. And I think 1917 is pretty much the year uh, in which you could mark a definitive shift. Um, I, I'm not quite certain how... Um, how visible this was to contemporaries, but um, the shift is there, at least in hindsight. And today we are going to talk a lot about it. And so military stuff will take a backseat. We will be talking less about battles and battle strategy and stuff. And we are going much more into the political nitty gritty because there's a lot going on in this year. But uh, to just keep you on your in your siege, seats for a moment longer, uh, we are starting off with the military stuff and take a quick look at the Western Front, where true um, to to a certain book, uh, not, not not everything is all quiet, uh, but there is nothing new because all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, the German title of the book is nothing new on the Western Front. Invest in its noise, uh, and I think this applies for a lot of stuff. So what are the major events of the Western Front in 1917? All right, so coming down to the close of 1916, the Battle of Verdun ends, and it ends in a French victory asterisk, uh, because while it does, while the French do win, it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory. They take a lot of casualties, but essentially now the French have to decide what they want to do when it comes to the Western Front. And the person that they get to replace it is a new commander because uh, Joseph, Zoff- Joseph Joffre, who's been the Marshal of France since the beginning, and he basically made his bones in the Miracle on the Marne, but Verdun kills him, essentially. And 
Robert Nivelle is the man that's replaced, and he is very popular with the high command and with the British because he speaks English, and he speaks English like an Englishman. So a lot of people on all sides of the Western uh, Entente like him, and he says that what we need to do right now, the Germans are expended and we need to attack. We will have a lightning campaign. That is specifically the words he was using was a lightning campaign and that they would be able to establish a commanding breakthrough in 48 hours. 48 hours was the uh, essentially what they de uh, decided on as the, the timetable. And so... The, however, uh, due to, I believe it was a couple of intercepted messages that were captured by uh, German uh, scouting units, and then they were brought back, the entire plan of the Nivelle Offensive, uh, which is a, their projected offensive along, uh, let's see, it's at, uh, uh, I believe it's at uh, Champagne, at the Aisne, and along the Chemin de Dom, um, they found out exactly what they're going to, and the Germans, who are now also who have also lost their chief of staff, uh, chief of staff. We talked we talked a little bit. This, chief of staff Falkenhayn has been replaced with Eric Ludendorff and uh, Paul von Hindenburg, and they decide, well, this is we're a little bit too exposed. Let us retreat to our to the Hindenburg line. The Hindenburg line is a massive line of fortifications. It's got bunkers and trenches and machine guns and all that, and they said. And the thing is, is that not only do the French know about this, the Germans are shelling their forward lines, the lines they just retreated. And of course, now some individuals in the British and the French high command are saying, hey, look, um, we need to change our plans here because the, the big idea we have is this lightning bombardment that's going to pierce these lines. But these lines are largely empty we need to readjust. And Naval says, no, no, no. This just means that we have, we now have open ground in which to, to, to go. And so he pushes forward. Uh, the, uh, it starts in uh, springtime, uh, 16 April, and it, it's a complete disaster. It is an absolute disaster. Um, the, I mean, they can't keep, I mean, the, the Germans are, are struggling to actually use their, um, aircraft because the allies have more aircraft but not, uh, the fortifications are uh, the forward fortifications are empty the Hindenburg line is strong the Germans because they've able to been able to key in their artillery and use predictive fire they just obliterate the uh, the French at Arras at Vimy Ridge at the Aisne all of this is just essentially they were just completely decimated. And the big thing, not only does Nivelle lose his job because he keeps saying, that, no, 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 okay, it's not 48 hours. Now we need 96 hours. Now we need, and, and eventually everyone just has enough of it. But the big thing are what's called the French army mutinies, which is a bit of a misnomer because a mutiny signifies an actual attempt to overthrow the commanders in charge, whereas the French were saying, we need to make peace and we need to establish ourselves defensively. We can't keep doing these costly offensives. And so essentially now after, um, after this happens, Nibal gets sacked and new, uh, a new man is appointed. Uh, you may have heard of him. 
Uh, he is called a Philippe Pétain, uh, the Lion of Verdun, who made his bones at Verdun and specifically was very popular among the troops because he advocated for defensive warfare and not using costly attacks. He'll attack if he thinks he can gain an advantage, but he tends to say it's easier to have the Germans break on their lines rather than to break the German lines. And so, uh, and then uh, Ferdinand Foch is also involved. He will later become the supreme allied commander of the uh, allies, uh, but that won't happen for another year. So that is what happens on the Western Front, a, just essentially the same idea of 1914 brought over again. All we need is a big, overwhelming, powerful, decisive battle and it just doesn't work. But what makes it worse is that everybody was starting, to, you know, with hindsight, obviously, says, well, of course this wasn't going to work. The Germans retreated to the Hindenburg Line. This is, and speaking of the German retreat to the Hindenburg Line, it was actually masterfully done. Uh, Eric Ludendorff, we talked about him a little bit earlier. Uh, he gets a lot of criticism, especially uh, for next year when he's, they said he's always the improviser. But he conducts an absolutely brilliant uh, active withdrawal of the uh, of retreat to the Hindenburg Line, and his uh, his actual his you know coup de grace of actually making sure to key in the artillery to strike their own lines is masterfully done. I have just one a little detail to add, uh, which is kind of a, on a biographical note, because when I was a child, I loved the adventures of young Indiana Jones. And they had this one episode that was set in Verdun, uh, and that was there to highlight uh, the slaughter of Verdun. Uh, and two of the main characters in this episode were Pétain and Neville. Uh, and Neville was the bad guy and Pétain was the good guy, which isn't something that with a little bit more knowledge about history one should do, but the script writers did it. Um, and, and Neville is the guy who uh, sacrifices his troops and uh, who drinks champagne while they're all dying and stuff, whereas Pétain is this uh, very concerned uh, leader who wants, to, uh, who wants to save lives. And I think uh, it comes from this, uh, from this episode. Uh, this uh, this myth. Yeah. Well, so in, in fairness, Patan actually at Verdun, for example, he specifically would drink the rough wine that the, the French, uh, you know, the, the enlisted men had to eat and the conscript, or conscripts had to drink. Uh, he he actually taste the rough stew and specifically, uh, famously actually ordered uh, better nutrition and better taste to be delivered to all of the, uh, the stew pots in the front. So, uh, I mean, Patan is a complicated figure um, because the horrible things that he did as as leader of Vichy France shouldn't be minimized. Uh, but you can't you can't say that, for example, that episode didn't happen because of the things that he did. It's just it's history. It's 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 never clean cut. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it isn't. Yeah, that's true, of course. Uh, but but here it was this like a good versus evil thing, and yeah. uh, and he's the wrong figure for that. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. But well, do you find good and uh, evil people in World War One? Uh, that's yeah, that's well, another topic entirely. Yeah. But so, uh, so we leave the uh, Western Front, and now we're going to go slightly to the southeast because, oh, actually, I should say one more thing. Actually, there is a a milestone by the British Army. The first combined uh, arms warfare is done in 1917 at the Battle of Cambrai. Um, and it specifically when I'm talking about combined arms warfare, I'm saying that the artillery, the infantry, and the air support are all working together. There's predictive fire, there's sound ranging. 
there's close air support. There's actually these infiltration tactics, which we mentioned that the Russians under Brusilov designed and that the Germans were going to be designing and would become very famous with the stormtrooper tactics. This is where it actually happens. This is very, very late in 19, 1917. And the lessons learned from this battle, the Battle of Cambrai, essentially formed the blueprint for modern combined arms warfare. And when I say modern, I'm specifically talking about like World War, the, the interwar in the World War II era, because obviously with missiles and things like that, it becomes a little bit more, more uh, challenging. But um, the blueprint for successful battle, and that's both, uh, you know, with the early Blitzkrieg and with the, you know, the later uh, in 1918, there's going to be something called the 100 Days Offensive, which we'll talk a lot about. And uh, it is started here in the Battle of Cambrai. That is when the uh, commanders of the British Army specifically figure out essentially the secret sauce of how all these little pieces work together to form an outcome that is greater than the sum of its parts. So, yeah, that's important. That's important from a military history perspective. It's always these little things that will have ripple effects in the pond down the road. But yeah, because we never talk about the Battle of Combray. No. Uh, it's, yeah, but, it's, okay, so now I said, now let's, let's go back to what I said. Uh, the Battle of Caparoto, as we mentioned before, the Italians essentially entered the war in 1915 after being openly horse traded by both sides. Um, and essentially, they, the Italians decide on the Entente because they're hoping to get back to Trieste and other places from Austria-Hungary. And um, essentially, there is a battle that uh, there's a river called the Asanzo. And essentially, the battle just kind of stays there. The front is frozen. There are multiple battles of the Asanzo because no, the, the, the terrain is so difficult, the defensive advantage is so high that essentially Italy and Austria-Hungary bleed each other out on this, on this uh, battle for no real gain. Very similar to what you're seeing with like the, uh, the Battle of Bakhmut uh, in the Russia-Ukrainian War today. Um, but essentially, it, of course, it doesn't help that Conrad von Hutzendorf and Luigi Cadorna have been some of, were some of the worst generals in World War I. Um, but essentially, in 1917, in, in the fall, in October, the Central Powers finally score a very, very key breakthrough. Uh, Paul von Hindenburg says, all right, we're going to send some troops and um, we're going to send some scientists. They're going to get the perfect place for a gas attack. They essentially strike. They have an overwhelming uh, advantage. I think they have almost double the number of artillery pieces. And the Central Powers score a commanding breakthrough, and they achieve some uh, victory. Essentially, the Italians have to pull back. Uh, eventually, uh, I believe his name is Luigi Capello, essentially is able to push it back and do this heroic, and especially in Italian, in Italian cultural history, you know, this far and no farther sort of moment where he's able to, but really it's also enabled by the fact that, again, no one really knows where these breakthroughs are going to come uh, come from. Uh, logistics in, are, is on the train, which is very difficult to actually improvise as opposed to, say, motorized or airborne logistics. Um, and the so they run out of steam, but specifically the uh, Central Powers are able to move 150 kilometers to the P uh, Piave River. And essentially that is... The big thing, uh, the Western Entente actually almost fear that the Italians are going to drop out of the war. Um, 
when it comes to this, that they're going to sue for peace. Now they end up not. Again, they're able to just establish a new boundary on the Piave River. And this just shows just how difficult it was to actually, um, you know, I mean, the, so, you know, despite the fact that, you know, how difficult it was to fight, but when you get these, essentially these good ideas, this combination of military craft with essentially, I mean, you need your engineers, you need your civil logistics, you need your military strategy, you need your scientists. Once they get these things together, they can actually score very key breakthroughs. And that's what happened in the Battle of Caporetto. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by this battle because it is one of the few moments, uh, at least in the not eastern front parts of the war where you get some major win in territory and even then it doesn't decide the war in any way i mean half a year later there will be a, a counteroffensive that essentially takes everything back and break the austrian army or a year later whenever that is in 1918 uh, but yeah the risk is of course there uh, that the italians could drop out of the war and uh, I think that the Allies needed to commit uh, quite quite a lot of resources to stabilize the front, like sending troops, uh, British and French troops, uh, sending a lot of material, committing a lot uh, to keep uh, their Italian ally in the war, which at this point had become something of a liability, really. And this is also important later on, because, of course, uh, this isn't exactly like a war-winning maneuver, but for the French, uh, for the Italians, it is extreme suffering that's involved here. They lose a lot of people. Uh, it, many, many more get displaced. Um, you have the devastation that goes with it, uh, the chaos, uh, the trauma, etc. So at the end of the war, uh, the Italians feel like they sacrificed quite a lot, which will then contribute to the feeling that they get the short, that they get... Uh, shafted, uh, essentially, when it comes to the Versailles negotiations, and which will make them into this revisionist power in the 1920s and directly contribute to the rise of Mussolini. So this is also something that happens in 1917, uh, and which, of course, is uh, divorced from the military strategy itself, but it is downstream from military events, because those do not happen in a vacuum. They have a, di a dynamic uh, balancing within societies in which they take place. Yeah, no, it's because uh, I mean, yeah, that's called the uh, the Vittore Mutilago, I believe, the mutilated victory uh, after World War One, where essentially the Italians feel shafted. They no longer trust the British and the French, and then with the you know the the economic unrest that happens afterwards, that it directly leads to the rise of Mussolini, um, and then he interestingly enough, does some horse trading at a uh, wherever where he's trying to get colonies from France and Britain in exchange for support against Hitler. And then he supports the nationalists in Spain, which leads him to get rapprochement with Hitler. It's, it's very, very, very well historical. Let's just say, as we're talking about this open horse trading with Italy, it seems to be that uh, that just ends up happening. Just, But I mean, where, where does that not happen? Where, where does... I mean, in foreign policy, the norm is overplaying your hand uh, rather than the exception. So, <laughs> uh, but let's let's move away from that. Uh, I believe actually uh, very little happens in the Salonika front right now. Um, mostly uh, command re uh, revision. Uh, they take out some of the poorly performing French commanders. And that's due to a guy that we were talking about in great deal, a little man named Clemenceau. Uh, but uh, let's go to the Eastern Front now, because the Eastern Front has a lot happening. Uh, in 1917, the February Revolution happens. 
and the czar is forced to abdicate to a provisional government, which is led uh, nominally by a man named Alexander Kerensky. And uh, in, pra- in practice, it's a highly dysfunctional mess of uh, liberal, socialist, Bolshevik parties. Um, the Bolsheviks are trying to get power through the Soviets and placing workers' councils in the major cities. The, um, the provisional government tends to represent more of the, uh, you know, the Duma are, uh, are represented. A lot of the farmers' parties are represented um, in that. And so uh, the big dividing point, well, one of many, because there's plenty of economic things, is what to do with the war. The Kerensky government knows that it's going to need loans from the French government in order to successfully prosecute or rebuild Russia after this. And so it wants to, it does not want to leave the war. It wants to stay in the war simply so that it can make sure it can maintain good relationships with the French and the British. Uh, And the Petrograd Soviet is very much against this, but not really against the war, so to speak. They're actually more or less just they see it as a way to actually gain power in the and uh, essentially sideline the provisional government, which is common among popular front governments. Um, And so essentially the Kerensky wants to demonstrate, however, that he is committed to this war. And so he just says, well, I know exactly how we're going to prove our commitment. We are going to send a uh, we're going to attack Austria-Hungary, if we can get Austria-Hungary and knock them out of the war, then that will put so much pressure on Germany that they will have to uh, change to defensive warfare. And the British and the French won't be able to say, oh, well, we made our our arrangements with the previous uh, government, with the czar. We don't necessarily have to recognize or, you know, continue a relationship with the Russian provisional government, which had some merit, but not very much. But anyway, the Kerensky offensive starts uh, because not only are is the war extremely unpopular in Russia, but uh, they attack well before they are ready. They um, they have only a they only have they have a numerical advantage, but not very much, um, and. They are just, I mean, they're, uh, what is it? Uh, the, as the offense pretty much goes into its major, uh, you know, longer day, longer than a few days, it just peters out. Uh, morale is very, very poor. Um, the advance is very scattershot. And then essentially, um, what is it? Uh, the, uh, Germans start, uh, yeah. Uh, the Germans start counterattacking under, um, Felix Graf von uh, Bothmar, I believe that's how to, how to say that. And essentially they counterattack and just completely obliterated the, uh, the Russian army. And when I say obliterated, I mean the 11th army ceased to exist. There was, I mean, the Russians sent the 7th, the 8th, and the 11th army, and they lost one. They lost an army. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, and then, of course, the very popular Brusilov got replaced um, by a man named Lavra Kornlov, and he's going to be very important in a bit when we talk about the political history of Russia in 1917. Uh, and 
what is it? Uh, he also decided to crack down and he reimposed the death penalty for desertion, uh, which caused morale to plummet among the Russians and really gave enabling rise to the Soviets. Now, the Soviets then, um, however, had a lot of ill-timed, uh, essentially, they tried to revolt against the Kerensky government on the July days. And uh, they had very little support, uh, even among the, um, a lot of the socialist parties decided to throw in with Kerensky. And uh, the agrarian parties never showed up for them. So only a few, uh, only the diehard factory workers, they were quickly crushed and a lot of them were uh, imprisoned. Uh, and that caused the Bolsheviks to actually have a severe lack of popularity, which did very little for Russia, because now everyone that was ruling Russia was hated by the Russian people, uh, both uh, the Petrograd Soviet and the provisional government under Kerensky. I'm continually fascinated by this. Just one more offensive and we're through. Uh, thinking we get it with the French, uh, the Germans will do the same thing in 1918. We see it with the Russians here. And it just never materializes. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's the thing is everyone thinks the, the idea is, well, they have to be as battered as we are. And the thing is, they are, but they haven't really quite figured out, with the exception of the British at Cambrai, how that secret sauce of how to break the defensive advantages works. So you have to remember in, in military history, it's always easier to defend a position than it is to attack a position. Um, and there it's so difficult to do so because you can use different things to essentially it's called a force multiplier essentially a, uh, where a defensive force can fight at a level higher than its numbers would suggest because of certain conditions whether that be defensive works whether that be fixed guns whether that be whatever and no one can quite get over this defensive multiplier of barbed wire, trenches, artillery field guns, uh, Vickers guns, and all that other stuff that essentially can turn any sort of infantry push into a slaughterhouse. Now, tanks are helping, but tanks are also extremely mechanically unreliable. I mean, to the point where tank crews in the British Army are getting poisoned by their own uh, exhaust fumes because it's not the, the, the cabin itself is not properly ventilated. These tanks are horribly slow. They essentially, they're armored tractors right now, these big land ships. And uh, if they can't actually go over a trench, uh, like as, if they can't go and push over the trench where their wheels, uh, where the, the treads on one side are still on the ground and it reaches on the other side, these things will fall into a trench and then they're almost completely unsalvageable. Uh, because it's not like you're going to be able to get a, an ox team to actually down there to go and pull the darn thing out. Because, you know, we're not, we're not, I mean, motorization is still very, very new in 1917. So it's not like we actually have a, a fleet of tow trucks that could actually go and take care of that. So uh, it's still very difficult to beat these defensive uh, positions. And, but everybody keeps thinking, well, we have to do it. All we have, they're so broken. All we have to do is break them. And will win, and it will be over. Which is an enticing image, of course. But yeah, let's go back to the political stage. You mentioned the unpopularity of all of these governments. And I think this is something important to keep in mind, especially when it comes to the Bolsheviks. Because in later propaganda, the Bolsheviks always make great hay about this idea that they are the people 
basically, that they are uh, the masses uh, that arm themselves to overthrow the government. It's, all, uh, it's also in the name. Bolsheviki uh, in Russian means uh, the majority. Whereas their opponents, uh, the so-called Mensheviki, uh, the minority, uh, which is actually something like a social democratic party of Russia, in reality, these relations are completely reversed. The Bolsheviki are a small minority, whereas the Mensheviki are the overwhelming majority uh, of, um, of voters, of supporters, of delegates. But all of this... I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say that they were the overwhelming majority of all voters, but they were definitely the overwhelming majority of, of all of those that were in the Soviet. Yeah. Uh, because it, because the, uh, the agrarian parties didn't join the Soviet and a lot of the liberal and uh, uh, the liberal parties didn't join the Soviet. But among the, the Petrograd Soviet, they were overwhelmingly represented, represented. And the reason why the Bolshevik and Menshevik names were applied was because at the one time when they were doing the count, uh, the Mensheviks were not allowed to attend. <laughs> that makes it even worse. I mean, these guys are just such a minority, such a splinter group. They are left-wing radicals. And no, at no time in history have left-wing radicals ever commanded something like a majority. Like, and they don't do it in the Russian Revolution either. What they have is a very good propaganda department, and they will have some excellent timing after having some really bad timing uh, in the beginning of this thing. Uh, I mean, the Bolsheviki, they are essentially done uh, in the late spring. Uh, of 1917, Lenin has to flee uh, to Finland and uh, all that, uh, all that stuff. It is just, uh, it's just an, uh, an utter disaster uh, for this, uh, for the Bolsheviki. And if the prov um, uh, provisional government wouldn't fuck things up so badly, they would never have gotten any shot. If you, I actually just, dis I disagree there. There's actually one very, very specific thing that actually restored the Bolsheviks to prominence. So this is something that people don't really talk about because Russian history isn't really studied. But in September 1917, there is a coup attempt by Lavar Kornilov, the guy we just talked about. Uh, he essentially, because there was a lot of unrest. Now, you are correct in saying that the provisional government were able to fuck, kept fucking things over and helped contributing to the unrest. Also, you had problems like the Petrograd Soviet were just assaulting businessmen and industrialists in the street. Um uh, so, you know, all, there's a lot of street violence and, and Lavir Kornilov says, I'm going to restore order and he's going to overthrow the uh, government because it's just too darn revolutionary. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're a threat, they're a threat to order. And so we need to take them out. And Kerensky, looking for support, opens the jails to the, from us uh, for the Bolsheviks. So they are, a, they are released from prison. Trotsky comes out. And uh, that is what actually restores the Petrograd Soviet and the Bolsheviks to power was the fact that Lavir Kornilov attempted to overthrow the government. I did not know this. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for that context. That is incredible. The, the, the general point I was trying to make however, is a different one. Uh, it, it's the same thing that we see um, in, uh, in the Weimar Republic. So if you remember from our previous series, Hitler doesn't get into power uh, because he's elected by popular majority. I mean, he gets close, much closer than the Bolsheviks will ever go. Um, but even he needs the help of the entrenched powers. And the same is true for the Soviets here. Uh, they get a major push from exogenic factors. 
and from uh, the powers that are, uh, in this case, by uh, being made into something like an uh, an armed wing uh, of the government, uh, if that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, no, that, and that's the thing, is that uh, he was, um, he had so much, I mean, the, the, so much, I mean, again, when people are, you know, we, we, we've been talking about all of these, you know, these offensive, just one more offensive. And, and you have to remember that each of these failures are costing thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives. And a lot more people are coming home wounded, uh, maimed, uh, insane. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize is that there were, there were people after they got gassed who were just never the same. Um, especially, for example, there, I mean, there were very many reports of farmers who would come back and they couldn't work on the farm because the smell of hay reminded them of gas, of poison gas, and they would just, they would go to pieces. Um, so there's just so much, uh, you know, when we talk about these failures, this is where this unrest is coming from. It's coming from a very, very justifiable place of, hey, you people, you know, you generals are making these decisions and we're the ones paying for it. Um, and that enables a lot of, I mean, uh, in the Western Entente, a lot of socialist parties be, uh, start to rise in prominence. Uh, a lot of pacifist parties that st uh, start to rise in prominence. Um, even, I mean, and that, that's kind of interesting too, because a lot of the actual uh, people in these uh, socialist parties, for example, are still pro, well, they're not pro-peace. They're just, they want to switch to a defensive tack. And uh, that is exemplified most brilliantly by the French prime minister who gets elected in 1917 was uh, a man named Georges Clemenceau. And he had a very, very famous quote, which he says, war is too important to be left to the generals. And um, he is known to um, the thing is, people really didn't care when he was first elected, but he specifically visited the trenches and walked in the trenches and shook hands with privates and conscripts. Uh, I mean, and that sounds like a photo op and to some extent, you know, that, that is the case. It's him. Mean, he's a politician after all. Um, he replaces, um, uh, to, uh, he, as he points, uh, Henry Mordac, uh, Mordac, uh, as his chief of staff. And specifically, uh, he establishes a very strong, uh, dialogue with the army and the government, but he specifically says, you know, I am the civilian commander in chief of the military and I'm going to exert the power that I'm, that is due to my office. You can't just launch these offensives and destroy the, you know, the people of France, you know, you have to, we have to be involved in this. Now, of course the generals hate this, but, um, but a lot of the, uh, but a lot of the men love it. And that's why I'm always reluctant to call the French army mutinies in a, as a mutiny, as opposed to a large scale, I would say, insubordination uh, rather than a mutiny. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A question here. Does this not also make the civilian government responsible uh, for mishaps and uh, and all that stuff? Or does this not matter at this point because everyone who's in a leading position is thrown in the same position of uh, being responsible for the whole mess anyway? Well, I mean, taking coming from a guy who's actually been active duty, I'd always hold the civilian government responsible for stupidity and failure on the part uh, of that. But uh, 
you know, the thing is, is that, I mean, that's the way it is. And ideally in practice, it tends to just be a uh, PR battle as to who gets to, who, who takes the, the blame for failure. Um, but, um, you know, the, I mean, the thing is, is that, I mean, you know, Clemenceau starts to make, uh, make tangible improvements to the actual thing. So, you know, you could say that the civilian government, of course, deserves blame because they're in charge, but it's like, well, you know, Clemenceau is trying to try to improve things. So that's also a factor that you have to consider. So it's like, you know, you, obviously Clemenceau can't be held responsible for the failure of the Chemin de Dom because it's like he wasn't even in charge at the time. But, uh, you know, I guess the question is, you know, how do they respond to that? And guys like, you know, David Lloyd George and Clemenceau are actually making sure that they can, uh, you know, make improvements to the whole thing. And again, even like, even guys like Philippe Pétain, when they're trying to just adopt a, uh, a strategy that's a little bit more sensible to the battlefield realities, you can say that at least they're trying to do what they can do. Yeah, my question was not so much what's happening in reality, but how did people uh, see it back at the time, you know? Oh, 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 well, I mean, that was, I, th I think, you know, that people, the, the public tends to have kind of a sh short term and simplistic memory when it comes to things like that. Uh, you essentially, when they said, hey, look, uh, the, the failure of uh, the Chemin des Dames was Neville. And Neville got the blame and Neville was sacked and there you go. Uh, but that's just kind of the way of the world. I mean, if you don't really look at institutions, people, I mean, we, we talked about this before, I think, several times. People are very bad at, at anything that's not personalized. Uh, things that are either cosmically vast or incredibly minute, people have a hard time approximating um, and organizations, people tend to anthropomorphize them into figures, into the, the leaders, into uh, representatives and things like that. That's just how they work because it's just, it's simpler to understand it that way. And we only have so much finite brain power and so much time to do research and to figure things out. I mean, just think about any, any, uh, you know, issue, political issue, uh, these days and how much it's talked about as, you know, these policy pro proposals are this person or this faction of government, whereas in, it's actually in much more complicated than that. Yeah, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. And as you just said, that's a a human constant, uh, essentially. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we make sense of things based on our experiences, and we, we experience things solely through the lens of us doing. So we are one person, and we interact with things. So that personal defines a lot of our contextual contextualization. From a psychological perspective. Yeah, that's certainly true. So let's contextualize a little bit while we're at it. One, one of those transitions we are famous for. So we have two Russian revolutions. And these uh, this double blow of revolutions is essentially what is knocking Russia out of the war. As you already explained in detail, not the first revolution, the one from March. Uh, this is... Um, the, the new Russian government, while being something like a democracy, uh, or at least a republic, or on the way there, however you want to phrase it, uh, they are now, uh, they are still committed to, uh, to following, to prosecuting the war. And this is very important, because Russia being this autocracy had always been a propagandistic Achilles heel of the Entente powers because you have France, which is a republic, you have Great Britain, which is this liberal uh, constitutional monarchy, def defender of freedom, etc. You have this um, 
this friendly relationship with the United States, and then you are allied to the most autocratic regime, to the most backward uh, autocratic regime there is in Europe. Uh, I mean, Russia is so loathed by so many people that even in Germany, which is no stranger to uh, autocratic elements, uh, the opposition head, um, uh, August Babel, uh, he once famously said, when it's against Russia, even I will take a musket. <laughs> and uh, at that point, he was like 80 years old or something. And he was a social democrat. He was committed to internationalism, to pacifism and all of that. And he said, when we're fighting Russia, this autocratic government, they are the bad guys, they need to go. And the March Revolution of 1917 now gives the Allies a unity of purpose. Now they are really an alliance of democracy against uh, the autocracies of Middle Europe, uh, of Germany and of Austria-Hungary. For the first time, propaganda, rhetoric and uh, the real systems of government at least tangentially line up. And this seems like a huge chance. And I think at one point we need to do something like a whole episode about the idea uh, that Russia actually does not experience the second revolution and goes out of this as a democracy, as a big of what if, but we don't have the time for that here, unfortunately. And the thing is that this coup attempt uh, and the further destabilization because of the failed offensive and then the second uh, second revolution or the second coup, however you want to call it, of October 1917 or November 1917, depending on what calendar you use, is throwing Russia basically out of the war. The army has been obliter obliterated militarily and the victory of the Bolsheviks in St. Petersburg is more or less obliterating the state. Because in popular histories of Russia of that period, you, you get the impression that the October Revolution happens and then the Bolsheviks are in control of Russia. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, they don't even control St. Petersburg, let alone anything resembling Russia. Russia is in a state of disintegration right now, uh, and it will soon spiral into civil war. These guys need to get control uh, over all the institutions, uh, the rest of the army. They need to uh, enact a gigantic land reform while they are losing a world war, uh, while they are uh, in a starting civil war. They need to get uh, their hands on the levers of government, etc., etc. They have their hands full. And this is um, necessitating, from the Bolshevik point of view, a necessity to quit the war as quickly as possible. And we will talk in our next episode more about this, because the peace treaty that comes out of that, uh, the peace treaty with Germany, is another seminal event of the war. Uh, but for right now, they are starting to go into armistice negotiations with Germany. And this changes the whole picture of the war. Yeah, and uh, it's also worth noting, kind of funny thing, because uh, believe it or not, Lenin was actually sent to Russia to destabilize it by Ludendorff. Uh, because you have to remember at this point, uh, Lenin during the February Revolution, although they, they talk a big hay, I mean, in popular Bolshevik history, they talk a big hay about how the uh, the Bolsheviks helped overthrow the Tsar. Lenin was in Switzerland when the Tsar abdicated. Uh, he was sent to Russia with the express purpose of destabilizing Russia uh, by the Germans. Uh, they sent him by a covered and secret armored train to Russia and, uh, you know, mission accomplished, certainly, because the destabilization of Russia happened. I mean, Lenin, 
Lenin is kind of a large figure, and I don't like great man history, but really Lenin was necessary for the Bolsheviks to succeed. Um, Trotsky was hated by everyone in the Bolshevik party uh, because he was seen as too extreme. Uh, yeah, go figure. The extremists think that guy is too extreme. Uh, and there were just a whole lot of, uh, other set of personalities that Lenin was a very, very good orator. I mean, Trotsky was a good orator too, um, but uh, Lenin was a very strong orator and was able to actually keep the uh, Bolsheviks as a singular united front, which in the Russian Civil War would cause the death of the whites because they could, the only thing they could agree on was they didn't like the Bolsheviks, but there were liberals, there were autocrats, there were people who wanted to restore the czar uh, and, and all of that. Uh, so... That, I think, uh, is just, you know, so again, that's kind of one of those ironic things where uh, Germany sends Lenin to go and destabilize Russia. And then, you know, uh, 30 years later, Russia is taken over half of uh, Germany. And we will talk a little bit about more about the general idea that the Bolsheviks had about this. But you should keep the question in mind. Why did Lenin go uh, along with this? You know, because he knew why he was sent to St. Petersburg, uh, that he uh, that the Germans wanted something from him, that they wanted him uh, to essentially knock Russia out of the war. So why did he do it? It's not because he hated Russia and loved the Germans or something. But the answer to that question, really, I would push into our 1918 episode. For now, just keep it in the back of your head. There is a reason for it. And the Germans will find that when you fight your neighbor, as Dan Carlin in his own podcast put it so nicely, that laying fire to their apartment is a very good way of hurting them, but it is also a very good way of hurting yourself <laughs> in that conflict with your neighbor. And the fire that the Germans are stoking here uh, will come back uh, and bite them in the ass. And if you do not remember how, just go back to listen to our very first Weimar episode uh, and you will get a refresher. But for now, uh, I want to go into the last important bit uh, of 1917, which once again is timing. I mentioned already that the Russian Revolution, the first one, uh, happened in March 1917. And I would venture a thought experiment with you, Jim, which is, let's imagine that this happens in January instead. Do the Germans make their biggest and most famous mistake in February? Ah, uh, with the unrestricted uh, submarine warfare. Exactly that. So that's a good question, uh, because I could see that if they, if they see... So I would think you would actually need probably like the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk to actually happen then, which formally actually ends the Soviets, the, the, the agreement on the Eastern, uh, you know, the, the war on the Eastern front, because it's like, uh, I, I can't see, I can't see any, any, you know, just discussions because discussions can always break down. Uh, you know, people can always back out. Uh, I would say you would probably need an actual full on treaty that, uh, and not just a treaty, but one that really favors the Germans the way Brest Litovsky did. Um, before, uh, if uh, for them to say no, we're going to, we're not going to uh, take the chains off the submarines. 
So at this point, you might wonder, what are we talking about? What's unrestricted U-boat warfare? And U-boats, or submarines, uh, depending on how you want to call them, are the new weapon of maritime warfare in World War I. And please do not imagine modern submarines and do not even imagine the submarines of World War II. These are submersibles. Uh, they are very small iron tubes that mostly go slowly on the surface and that can go down below the waves for limited amounts of time, very limited amounts of time. But uh, barring uh, great equipment to actually um, spot them once they go down, um, you, uh, you have a terrifying new weapon at your hands. And the German High Command is putting a lot of trust in these because, as we discussed last episode, there is nothing to win for the Germans in an open, um, in an open sea battle, in a sea engagement with the home fleet. Yeah, exactly. They, can, they cannot go and out. And they're blockaded. And uh, what can go out are U-boats because they can slip the blockade. And what the Germans are trying to do is to counter-blockade Great Britain. But with the technology at their hands and the number of boats involved on the one hand, they cannot really do it. But the German high command is bringing another reason why the counter-blockade of Great Britain is failing. And that reason is because they need to adhere to the laws of war. And how pesky are those laws of war? Because... Uh, according to those laws of war, if you want to sink a merchant ship you, uh, or um, or neutral shipping, you have to stop them, search them, and if they have contraband on board, like weapons or ammunition or something, then you can sink a neutral ship after leaving everyone the possibility uh, and the, the option to leave the ship before. And U-boats are really bad at this job uh, because, yeah, you can stop enemy ships, but U-boats are incredibly vulnerable. And the Allies are starting to arm their merchant ships because all they need is a very small caliber gun, uh, which when the U-boats uh, come uh, and try to stop them, they can just shoot at them and sink them. So this is one of the big problems they have. And then identifying a neutral ship from a non-neutral ship is very difficult uh, and to get reliable intel about which of the uh, when to risk uh, to stop a neutral ship and to search it and all of that is is very uh, very uh, problematic and so the german command is basically getting itself into a state where they are totally convinced it's it's auto cessation uh, they they are convincing themselves that if they would stop adhering to those laws and just shoot on sight uh, on everything uh, that moves in front of the torpedo tubes. They will starve out Great Britain in like half a year, and then the Germans will win the war, because without Great Britain, France obviously cannot go on. And the problem with this is that the largest supplier of neutral shipping is the United States. And having the United States against you in this war is not an enticing prospect, to put it mildly. And the German high command pulls another trick of self-hypnosis because they are saying, like, it won't matter because in half a year we will win this war and the Americans cannot do anything worthwhile in half a year, which is true as far as it goes militarily, uh, because the Americans will need over a year uh, to mobilize an army, to train an army, to ship it over uh, and to get it on the battlefield to do stuff. This is true. 
but having the Americans in the war and as an opponent does a lot more things uh, than just that, because the Americans are already in 1917 the most important economic factor worldwide. They are not the economic powerhouse they will be in the 1940s, but they are already the arsenal of democracy, more or less. And bringing them into the war officially is cranking that up to 11. It's just a really, really bad idea. Yeah, it's worth noting that the the U.S. military at the time is actually largely a volunteer. I mean, it's it's a, a volunteer force, but not in the way it's like state forces. There's a small core of federals and then a lot of state militias. And the biggest thing they've done was the Spanish-American War, which was, I mean, you actually had people building volunteer regiments and, and getting uh, brevet pr- pr- promotions, such as like Teddy Roosevelt with the Rough Riders. And then there was the Pancho Villa expedition, which was largely just an attempt to kill a Mexican bandit uh, in in Mexico. And the guy that was in charge of that was a guy named Je- uh, Blackjack Pershing, uh, and called that for an unflattering reason because he happened to be very respectful of the black troops. Uh, because you have to remember, at this time, the U.S. was segregated, and uh, yeah, all of the nasty uh, the nasty things that come from that. Um, but they don't ha- really have a large army that they can organize, but they do have a lot of shipping. The, they have a very large merchant marine. And when the U-boats come, uh, when the chains come off the U-boats, the U-boats start sinking everything, including passenger liners, which passengers who are American get sunk by Germans. And that becomes a very, very heavily... Um, you know, criticized thing. There's the Laconia, the Lusitania, which, you know, the, the Germans are saying it was smuggling weapons, which, by the way, it was actually smuggling weapons. But uh, that part was kept under wraps until after the war was over. They also decide that, well, what happens if the Germ- if the U.S. does do that? Let's find a way to actually make sure that the U.S. is distracted. And so they send a tem- telegram from Arthur Zimmerman, who was the foreign secretary, to Mexico and suggesting that, look, we can make war together and make peace together. And upon the Central Powers victory, we will grant you the states of Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico, which will be ceded as territorial concessions to you. And the British intercept this because they have to use the undersea telegraph lines, which run through Britain, uh, because at the time it was considered to be ungentlemanly to read each other's mail, so to speak. Um, the British give the decrypt to the United States, and in an absolutely baffling decision, the U.S. Uh, well, first off, the U.S. doesn't believe them. The U.S. thinks that this is a British ploy to get them in the war because the Br- Brits have been asking the Americans to enter the war since the war started. Um, and the, they summon the ambassador to Germany to answer for this, and the Germans admit the telegram is true. They, they had the perfect uh, – they had the golden opportunity to say that it was a fake, and they said, no, it's true, but this is ju- – it was just theoretical. And that really – raises anti-German sentiment in the United States. Um, You have to remember, in the United States at the time, especially in the Midwest, there are towns where there are are almost entirely German. There are German newspapers, there are German restaurants, there is German German, uh, everything. Uh, They are essentially a town of 
this, I mean, we think of the United States primarily as a British colony, but you have to remember all of Europe was colonizing the Americas and they they formed not, I mean, even after the, the colonies themselves disbanded and it became the United States, ethnic enclaves sprung up all over. So there were, uh, and a lot of German sentiment happened to just really, you know, anti-German sentiment really happened to rise. A lot of uh, people ended up having to change, uh, change their names uh, to be more English in order to get the Hun out of their family, including a guy named Eddie Rickenbacker, who was a World War I flying ace. Uh, the most accomplished American flying ace. Um, and so, yeah, just a, a lot of very puzzling decisions from Germany on the diplomatic arena, which really, as you say, timing, the timing is very, very bad because these things all happen in very short succession and it really starts to rise. And eventually uh, the, um, you know, on the 2nd of April, Woodrow Wilson, uh, petitions the House of Representatives for a declaration of war on Germany. And it happens in the 6th of April. Uh, and now the Germans are, or the United States has entered the war. Now, again, they don't really have an army to do anything, but what it really tells the French and the uh, British is that, well, the Americans are coming, so we don't have to worry so much. And that's why a lot of these, uh, for example, these French army mutinies uh, or insubordinations didn't become full-fledged mutinies or an attempt to overthrow the French or British governments because they said, you know, there there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We just have to get there. It is always baffling to me how the Germans underestimated the potential of the United States and how they fucked up this diplomatic game. I mean, it is such malfeasance it's almost active sabotage like what do you do in 1917 to surely lose the war that's what they're doing and i mean i i get it on yeah. on some level like it's an epic miscalculation but it just shows you that the decision making yeah. apparatus within the german military is utterly unable to uh, what we said in the, our very first episodes about this thing is utterly unable to think about anything other than the immediate military consequences. The, the German military is so bad at, at doing foreign policy, which is a through line that will continue way into World War II. Uh, they just cannot fathom thinking in terms of alliances of international support or anything. They're technocrats. And nowhere becomes this as clear as here, uh, in my mind. And it also shows the deep problems within the German governmental system because there is nothing to check this bullshit. Um, the, uh, the civil government ha at this point of the war has been sidelined. And this is mostly, and this is my thesis now, this is what essentially kills the German war effort. Because if the German civil governmental institutions like the Reichstag and uh, maybe even just the civil service and everything, you know, the professionals, if they would have had the influence that their French counterparts had, like if you have the same thing in Germany, that war is too important to leave it to the generals. In Germany, the exact opposite happens in 1917. They're giving all the power to the generals, Hindenburg and Ludendorff in this case. And this is what sinks the German war effort more than anything else. But that would, I mean, wouldn't that have required essentially a, 
a reformation as to, to essentially a constitutional Kaiserdom and an incredibly enabled uh, Reichstag uh, from before the war. Absolutely. Uh, but, but it also it, it is in theory imaginable this as a product of the war. Um, the same the same thing happens in France as well. Uh, I mean, you get a reassertion of uh, civil power uh, over the military. And I would even argue that in Great Britain, uh, something like this happens when they get rid of Hague um, or uh, rein him in or however you want to call it. Uh, I, I think Lloyd George is really the, the kind of because Lloyd George in 1916 really kind of campaigned on being a, li a little bit more intelligent. And that was kind of essentially a, a direct response to Gallipoli. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I mean. And you can imagine something like this in Germany as well. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the end result is that they boot Falkenhayn and put in Ludendorff and Hindenburg. Um, but if the German uh, civil society, if uh, the German democratic politicians would have had more clarity of purpose and more instinct for power, it is imaginable that they are trying to take the reins themselves. Uh, and and, uh, and force through a constitutionalization uh, of power, like make this grand bargain. Yeah, you know, we keep in the war, uh, and we are keeping uh, uh, keeping suffering all these losses and the deprivations and all of that. Uh, if you will uh, give us a, a say in power, if you will make us uh, into uh, how do you say collaborators, uh, basically in the war effort, uh, it is imaginable. It's not likely. Uh, but it is an uh, it is an, uh, an imaginable scenario, and I would argue, had that happened, Germany would not be in the dire straits it will find itself uh, in late 1918. Oh, so, democracy in Prussia, victory abroad, more or less, yes. Hey, that, they, that, I mean that that's the nice thing about these. Uh, you know, when we get to explore some of these little what ifs, because it is interesting to think of you know what would have happened, like you know could I mean especially when you think of you know the context of the interwar, you know the Third Reich. The inter because we talked about that in the Weimar episode. How could the how could uh, what would have happened if some other things had happened and you had a different thing come to power? And it is relevant to say, well, you have to remember the context is key. And so, you know, what if Germany had taken a different path in World War One, leading to not you know a situation where you can't have the stab in the back myth, where you can't have uh, necessarily the uh, you know the 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 cop pooch or the um, what was it? Or the uh, the the Munich beer hall uh, riot? You know. So hey, I mean, it's 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 certainly food for thought, right? I mean, that's and that's why uh, folks are listening to us, right? Not just to talk about history, but to kind of give a little bit of riff and start discussing and thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a very important point for me because there is this uh, this cliche that you cannot shake. That democracies are, for all their uh, for all their advantages, for the people that live in them, that they are essentially ineffective governments, and that uh, when it comes to war or foreign policy and that stuff, or it really do anything politically, a dictatorship is more efficient, you know, because they can cut through all the red tape uh, and they can get a decision done, uh, etc. And nothing could be more further from the truth. It's historically illiterate to say to think that. Exactly. But it is so commonplace to do this. And I think, well, just while we're at this topic, uh, this is one of the examples. Um, if things had uh, had gone the right way for the Russians, uh, for the new Russian government, this could have led to a democratic Russia. And if things had gone right in Germany, it could have led to a de democratic Germany and both as products of the, uh, of the war, and it could have led to a better prosecuted war. Uh, I don't know. 
how much you actually want a better prosecuted World War One. It's it's kind of a perverse um, thing to think about. Or always, you know, like um, yeah, we we get a few uh, ten thousand dead and wounded less, and maybe the war goes longer, but. Um, I don't know. Germany wins and gets to it gets to be a democracy or something like this. Would this have been better? It it is a very strange train of thought, but it shows you uh, that being a democracy is actually making you more resilient against bad choices, uh, and it can actually give you more strength uh, rather than less. And it is a different kind of strength. Uh, I think. I mean, Germany will fight for six years in World War II, uh, and they will fight to the bitter end, but this is a very brittle uh, strength, and it is utterly useless. It is completely unproductive. It is self-destructive and all of that. Whereas uh, the democratic uh, resilience that the French uh, in World War I show, for example, is much more productive uh, in a way. I, I don't want to lionize it because it has its own problems and it's still oh, yeah. in involving a lot of death, but... Um, it is just a point I want to make. Democracy is the best of all systems, and not, uh, and it is not inferior to dictatorships in decision making or prosecuting wars. No, oh, yeah, I one hundred percent agree. I mean, just look at the the differences between, say, the Soviet Union in their prosecutions of wars, and you know, say Afghanistan or something like that. I mean, the U.S. had a, a big problem with Vietnam. But I mean, look at, say, for example, other, uh, you know, the Desert Storm. I mean, that was a masterclass from a democratic power. Or, I mean, even in World War II, the the Soviet Union and the, uh, you know, was an incredibly incompetent, clumsy force when it came, came to fighting militarily. Uh, they were motivated by the fact that, yes, they were actually going to be exterminated if they lost. Um, but it's like, and similarly, Germany... While they had some tactical brilliance uh, because of a good, you know, field uh, field office, they were strategically bankrupt. They had, they were. I mean, the writing was on. I mean, in World War One, it's kind of a a cut and thrust affair. There's some points where you think, hey, the germ, the central powers might actually be able to win this, uh, or at least, you know, you can make the discussion for that if certain things broke certain ways, the central powers could have been in a much stronger place. Everybody knew the Second World War was over. You know, like who was going to win the Second World War by 1942? And it was just a matter of how painful the lancing of the boil that was Hitler was going to be. So, yeah, that's totally it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's it's just, yeah. So, I mean, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, that's it's always a good thing to kind of get a nice little throw line. And that, that I think is a good, a good through line for this is that the, uh, you know, for all of the weaknesses and dysfunction that democracy can involve, I mean, the democracy, the democratic powers were the ones that won the First World War. They won this, the Second World War. They they won the Cold War. It's that's just uh, you know how that uh, you know you, you got you know again you, we we were saying that it was historically illiterate to say that the that dictatorship was uh, you know the way to the future, and ironically, that is exactly what the Axis powers. Uh, specifically Mussolini, that was his, that was his line at the Great Depression, was that the uh, the, the democratic powers are incapable of responding to, to threats in the economic or military spheres. And watch, we're going to do this because we're not going to feel any of the sting of the Great Depression, and we're going to stop Ethiopia, or we're going to, you know, invade Ethiopia, and there's not a darn thing any of you can do about it. 
And uh, yeah, look where that got him. Yeah, totally. And I mean, even the democratic reaction to the Great Depression was better. It looked in the 1930s like uh, the Nazis with a full employment by 1938 and uh, the Italians or even the Soviets uh, had something like a secret sauce against the Depression. But uh, it was always eating the substance, uh, you know, and it was uh, and it was just a lot of uh, a lot of propaganda and uh it, it went into the military buildup, which is no good. And if you compare that uh, to what happened in France and Great Britain or in the United States especially, they laid the groundwork for the biggest period of prosperity that humanity has ever had. Whereas Germany and Italy and the Soviet Union, they laid the groundwork for the greatest line of suffering that people ever had. So I know what I'm banking on. Yeah, every yeah uh, until the Great Famine, until the the Mao's Great Leap Forward, uh, that that was a larger line of human suffering. But that's because of the, the the sheer population. But yeah, no, you're exactly right. The, I mean, it's the the Great Depression was over in uh, Britain by about 1933, 34, uh, in Argentina by 1935. So, yeah, no, I mean that's that's it. I think we've I think we've. Uh, quite uh we've hammered that ha- that nail hammered that nail home we absolutely did and i also think it's a good point to end this episode so I as always thanks for doing this with me join us next month when we are going to 1918 the last year of the war which unlike 1945 is not just a wrapping up and sweeping up of uh, a thing concluded years ago but which is right open up until like the midpoint of the year the Germans will launch one just uh, one mighty offensive. The Soviets will sue for peace and get it, uh, and then all of Europe crumbles. And the epoch year that we just talked about will be ushered in for everyone into an uncertain future. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and bye bye until next time. If you like this podcast, you can support us via PayPal at paypal.me slash boilleather, or you go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash boilleatheraudiohour. Patreon offers many subscription tiers, which give you early access to episodes, the possibility to weigh in on topic choices, bonus podcasts like the Boil Leather Audio Moment or the Boil Leather Audio Conversation, and of course, the possibility to be mentioned right in the beginning of every podcast. Hop over to patreon.com slash boiledleatheraudiohour or contribute over PayPal at paypal.me slash boiledleather.